Chapter Twenty Two of the Four Pools Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Four Pools Mystery by Jean Webster. Chapter Twenty Two: The Discovery of Cat Eye Mose. Having lighted our candles, we descended into the cave and set out along the path I now knew so well. When we reached the pool, the guide lit a calcium light, which threw a fierce white glare over the little body of water and the limestone cliffs, and even penetrated to the stalactite draped roof far above our heads. For a moment we stood blinking, our eyes scarcely able to see. So sudden was the change from the semi-darkness of our four flickering candles. Then Terry stepped forward. Show me where you found the body and point out the spot where the struggle took place. He spoke in quick, eager tones, so excited that he almost stuttered. It was not necessary for him to act the part of detective any longer. He had forgotten that he had ever was a reporter. He had forgotten almost that he was a human being. From where we stood, we pointed out the place above the pool where the struggle had occurred, the spot under the cliff where the body had lain, and the jagged piece of rock on which we had found the coat. Moser even laid down upon the ground and spread out his arms in the position in which we had discovered the colonel's body. Very well, I see," said Terry. Now the rest of you stay back there on the boards. I don't want you to make a mark. He stepped forward carefully to the edge of the water and bent over to examine the soft yellow clay which formed the border of the pool on the lower side. Instantly he straightened up with a sharp exclamation of surprise. "Did any negroes come in with you to recover the body?" he asked. "No," returned the sheriff. As old man Tompkins said, you couldn't hire a nigger to stick his head in here after the colonel was found. They say they can hear something wailing around the pool, and they think his ghost is haunting it. They can hear something wailing, can they? Terry repeated queerly. Well, I begin to believe they can. What is the meaning of this? He demanded, facing around at us. How do you account for these peculiar footprints? What prints? I asked as we all pressed forward. At the moment, the calcium light with a final flare died out, and we were left again in the flickering candle light, which seemed darkness to us now. Quick, touch off another calcium," said Terry with suppressed impatience. He laid a hand on my shoulder, and my arm ached from the tightness of his grip. There," he said, pointing with his finger as the light flared up again. "What do you make of those?" I bent over and plainly traced the prints of bare feet, going and coming and overlapping one another, just as an animal would make in pacing a cage. I shivered slightly. It was a terribly uncanny sight. "Well," said Terry sharply. The place was beginning to get on his nerves too. Terry, I said uneasily, I never saw them before. I thought I examined everything thoroughly, but I was so excited. I suppose, 
"'What did you make of them?' he interrupted, whirling about on Madison, who was looking over our shoulders. "'I—I I didn't see them,' Madison stammered. "'For heaven's sake, men,' said Terry impatiently, "'do you mean they weren't there, or you didn't notice them?' The sheriff and I looked at each other blankly, and neither answered. Terry stood with his hands in his pockets frowning down at the marks, while the rest of us waited silently, scarcely daring to think. Finally he turned away without saying a word, and, motioning us to keep back, commenced examining the path which led up the incline. He mounted the three stone steps, and with his eyes on the ground, slowly advanced to the spot where the struggle had taken place. "'How tall a man did you say Mose was?' he called down to us. "'Little short fellow, not more than five feet high,' returned the sheriff. Terry took his ruler from his pocket and bent over to study the marks at the scene of the struggle. He straightened up with an air of satisfaction. "'Now I want you men to look carefully at those marks on the lower borders of the pool.' and then come up here and look at these. Come along up in single file, please, and keep to the middle of the path. He spoke in the tone of one giving a demonstration before a kindergarten class. We obeyed him silently and ranged in a row along the boards. Come here, he said. Bend over where you can see. Now look at those marks. Do you see anything different in them from the marks below? The sheriff and I gazed intently at the prints of bare feet which marked the entire vicinity of the struggle. We had both examined them more than once before, and we saw nothing now but what had already appeared. We straightened up and shook our heads. "'They're the prints of bare feet,' said Madison, stolidly. "'But I don't see that they're any different from any other bare feet.' Terry handed him the ruler. "'Measure them,' he said. "'Measure this one that's flat on the ground. "'Now go down and measure one of those prints "'by the borders of the pool.' "'Madison took the ruler and complied. "'As he bent over the marks on the lower border, "'we could see by the light of the candle "'the look of astonishment that sprung into his face. "'Well, what do you find?' Terry asked. "'The marks up there are nearly two inches longer "'and an inch broader.' Exactly. Terry, I said, you can't blame us for not finding that out. We examined everything when we took away the body, and those marks below were simply not there. Someone has been in since. So I conclude. Now, Madison, he added to the sheriff, come here and show me the marks of Radnor Gaylord's riding boots. Madison returned and pointed out the mark which he had produced at the inquest but his assurance, I noticed, was somewhat shaken. That, said Terry, half contemptuously, is the mark of Colonel Gaylord. You must remember that he was struggling with his assailant. He did not plant his foot squarely every time. Sometimes we have only the heel mark, sometimes only the toe. In this case we have more than the mark of the whole foot. How do I account for it? Simply enough. The colonel's foot slipped sideways. The mark is, you see, exactly the same in length as the others, but disproportionately broad, 
At the heel and toe it is smudged, and on the inside where the weight was thrown it is heavier than on the outside. The thing is easy enough to understand. You ought to have been able to deduce it for yourselves. And besides, how did you account for the fact that there was only one mark? A man engaged in a struggle must have left more than that behind him. No, it is quite clear. At this point on the edge of the bank there was no third person. We are dealing with only two men, Colonel Gaylord and his murderer, and the murderer was barefooted. Mose, I asked. No, said Terry patiently, not Mose. Then who? That remains to be seen. I will follow him up and find out where he comes from. Terry held his candle close to the ground and followed along the path. At the entrance to the little gallery of the broken column it diverged, one part leading into the gallery and the other into a sort of blind alley at one side. Terry paused at the opening. Give me some more calcium light, he called to the guide. I want to look into this passage. And just hand me some of those boards, he added. It's very necessary that we keep the marks clear. The rest of us stood in a huddled group on the one or two boards he had left us, and watched him curiously as he made his way down the passage. He paused at the end and examined the ground. We saw him stoop and pick up something. Then he rose quickly with a cry of triumph and came running back to us, holding his hands behind him. It's just as I suspected, he said, his eyes shining with excitement. Colonel Gaylord had an enemy he did not know. What do you mean? we asked, crowding around. Here's the proof. And he held out towards us a well-gnawed ham-bone in one hand and a cheese rind in the other. These were the provisions intended for the church social. The pies, I fancy, have disappeared. We stared at him a moment in silent wonder. The sheriff was the first to assert himself. What have these to do with the crime? he asked, viewing the trophies with an air of disgust. Everything. The man who stole those is the man who robbed the safe and who murdered Colonel Gaylord. The sheriff uttered a low laugh of incredulity, and the guide and I stared open-mouthed. And what's more, I will tell you what he looks like. He is a large, very black negro, something over six feet tall. When last seen, he was dressed in a blue and white check blouse and ragged overalls. His shoes were much the worse for wear, and have since been thrown away. He was barefooted at the time he committed the crime. In short, Terry added, he is the chicken thief whom Colonel Gaylord whipped a couple of days before he died, and he briefly repeated the incident I had told him. You mean, I asked, that he was the hand? Yes, said Terry. He was the second hand. He has been hiding for two or three weeks in the spring hole at Four Pools, keeping hidden during the day and coming out at night to prowl around and steal whatever he could lay his hands on. He doubtless deserved punishment, but that fact would not make him the less bitter over the colonel's beating. When I heard that story, I said to myself, there is a man who would be ready for revenge 
if chance put the opportunity in his way. But, I expostulated, how did he happen to be in the cave? As to that, I cannot say. After the colonel's beating, he probably did not dare to hang about four pools any longer. He took to the woods and came in this direction, being engaged in petty thieving about the neighbourhood. It was necessary to find a hiding place during the daytime, and the cave was his most natural refuge. We know that he is not afraid of the dark. The spring hole at Four Pools is about as dismal a place as a man could find. He established himself in this passage in order to be near the water. See, here in the corner are drops of candle grease and the remains of a fire. On the day of the Mather's picnic, he doubtless saw the party pass through and recognized Colonel Gaylord. It brought to his mind the thrashing he had received. While he was still brooding over the matter, the colonel came back alone, and it flashed into the fellow's mind that this was his chance. He may have been afraid at first, or he may have hesitated through kindlier motives. At any rate, he did not attack the colonel immediately, but retreated into the passage, and the old man passed him without seeing him, and went on into the gallery and got the coat. In the meantime, the negro had made up his mind, and as the colonel came back, he crept along behind him. It is hard to trace the marks, for another barefooted man has walked over them since. But see, in this place at the edge of the path, there's the mark of a palm, showing where the assassin's hand rested when he crouched on the ground. He sprung upon the old man from the rear, and they struggled together over the water. Touch off a light, please. You see how the clay is all trampled over on both sides of the path, way out to the brink of the pool. There is no second set of marks here to obliterate it. We are dealing with just two people, Colonel Gaylord and his assassin. Terry bent low and picked up from a crevice what looked like a piece of stone covered with clay. Here, you see, is the end of the colonel's candle. He probably dropped it when the man first sprung, and in the darkness he could not tell who or what had attacked him. In his frenzy to have a light, he snatched out his matchbox, Radnor's box, and that too was dropped in the scuffle. Now, even if the original motive of the crime were not robbery, but revenge, as I fancy it was, at any rate the murderer, being a tramp and a thief, would have robbed the body. But he did not. Why was that? Because he saw or heard something that frightened him. And what could that have been but Mose running to his master's assistance? Terry strode over to the steps, which led to the incline, and motioning us to follow, pointed out some marks on the sloping bank at the side of the path. See, here are Moses' tracks. He was in such a hurry that he could not wait to come up by the steps. He tried to take a cross-cut. He scrambled up the slippery bank so fast that he fell on his hands and knees in this place and slid back. That accounts for those long, dragging marks. 
which none of you appear to have noticed. Mose did his best, but he could not reach his master in time. The murderer, seeing, or rather hearing him, for it must have been dark, was seized with sudden fear, and with a convulsive effort he threw the old man against the rock wall here, where his head struck on this broken stalactite. If you look carefully, you can see the marks of blood. He then hurled him into the pool and fled. It sounds plausible enough, said the sheriff slowly, but there are one or two points which I'm afraid will not bear examining. Suppose your man did throw the colonel into the water and run for it. Then what? I should like to know, has become of cat-eye Mose. That, said Terry, knitting his brows, is still a mystery and a fairly deep one. There is something uncommonly strange about those tracks on the lower borders of the pool, and I confess they puzzle me. Only one explanation occurs to me now, and that is not pleasant to think of. We have some clues to work with, however, and we ought not to be long in getting at the truth. If I had had your chance of examining the cave on the day of the crime, he added, I think I should know. You might, and again you might not, said Madison. It's easy enough for you fellows to come down here and make up a story about a lot of people you've never seen. But I'll tell you one thing, and that is that you're not so likely to hit the truth as the men who've been brought up in the country. In the first place, it comes natural to niggers to be whipped, and they don't mind it. In the second place, if your tramp did want to take it out on Colonel, why should he be scared by Mose, who was a little bit of a sawed-off cuss that I could lick with one hand tied behind me? You may be able to impress a New York jury with a ham bone and a cheese rind, Mr. Patton, but I can tell you, sir, that Virginia jury wants witnesses. We shall do our best to provide some said Terry coolly. "'And perhaps you can tell,' added Madison, with the triumphant air of clinching the matter, "'what has become of the five thousand dollars in bonds. You can never make me believe that any nigger. Oh, they're back in the safe at Four Pools. I found them this morning in the spring hole, where the man had thrown them away. Now, gentlemen,' he added, with a touch of impatience, I want to try a little experiment before we leave the cave. Will you all please put out your lights? I want to see how dark it really is in here. We blew out our candles and stood a moment in silence. At first all was black around us, but as our eyes become accustomed to the darkness, we saw that a faint light filtered in from somewhere in the roof above our heads. We could make out the pale blur of the white rock wall on one side and the merest glimmer of the pool below. No, Terry began. He could have seen nothing. He must have. He broke off suddenly and, gripping my arm, whispered out, What's that? Where? I asked. Up there, straight ahead. I looked up and saw two round eyes which glittered like a wild beast's staring at us out of the darkness. A cold chill ran up my back, and I instinctively huddled closer to the others, 
For a moment no one spoke, and I heard the click of Terry's revolver as he cocked it. Then it suddenly came over me what it was, and I cried out, "'It's Cat-Eye Mose! Good Lord! He can see in the dark! Strike a light, someone!' Terry said huskily. The sheriff struck a match. We lit our candles with trembling hands and pressed forward in a body to the spot where the eyes had appeared. Crouched in a corner of a little recess halfway up the irregular wall, we found Mose, shivering with fear and looking down at us with dumb animal eyes. We had to drag him out by main force. The poor fellow was nearly famished and so weak he could scarcely stand. What little sense he had ever possessed seemed to have left him, and he jabbered in a tongue that was scarcely English. We bolstered him up with a few drops of whiskey from Madison's flask, and half carried him out into the light. The guide ran ahead to get a carriage, spreading the news as he ran, that Cat Eye Mose had been found. Half the town of Luray came out to the cave to escort us back, and I think the feeling of regret was general, in that there had not been time enough to collect a brass band. End of chapter 22